morning, and thank you everyone for coming today online or in person. And uh, as you're turning in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6, just want to remind or point out to you something in the bulletin about the next two weeks, two special weeks where we want to focus on reaching our communities and uh, a couple of things, resources we want to offer to help you when it comes to inviting and when it comes to maybe reaching out to people in your own neighborhood. We're going to be looking at a a two-part series in John chapter 1 and looking at this interesting phrase we find twice in that chapter, come and see. That's our invitation to others to come and see who Christ is and the transformation he makes in our lives. So hopefully, hopefully you can be a part of these next two weekends with that. 1 Timothy 6. You might be surprised to hear me say this, but our passage today promises that you can be very wealthy on earth. And if you were to do a video clip of just that sentence, I could be accused of preaching what is sometimes called the prosperity gospel. What the passage actually teaches us is that we can be wealthy now in the things that matter most. We can be wealthy now because the reality is that money brings a lot of misery into people's lives. Money issues. Money issues can create envy, stress, frustration, fears, guilt, regrets. And God never intended that our material finances would do that. But rather, it would be a tool that he uses to bring us joy and peace if we learn the foundational lesson that we look at in God's word today. And basically, the lesson is this, that contentment is the truest form of wealth. Contentment materially can be the path to our truest wealth. Here's what Paul says, and it's like the first verse of this paragraph is, is saying it all, and then he develops it. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And the word gain is the word wealth. This is, this is defining for us true wealth. It's essentially, it's, a, it's an equation Godliness plus contentment equals true wealth. Phrase by phrase, the word godliness is really just a word for goodness. It's the same word used in the previous verse for the false teachers who had fake goodness or fake godliness. And they, remember it said, they thought that godliness, their fake godliness was a means to gain financially, and they meant money. But if you have true goodness plus contentment, you have actually true wealth. This word contentment is obviously a key for us to understand this passage. Literally, the word means self-sufficient, but it doesn't mean it in an arrogant, self-made man kind of way. This word self-sufficient is describing a satisfied self. 
satisfaction within, to be at peace. When you, when you eat a good, healthy meal, where you eat enough to be full, but you didn't overeat. In other words, not Thanksgiving. <laughs> but, but if you, it's a good meal, and you knew when to quit, and you were satisfied, and it was, you go, yeah, that's good. I've had enough. Do you feel that way about your financial situation? This is, this is good. This is okay. I have enough. I'm satisfied. Because if you do, then you have true wealth. Godliness plus contentment is great gain. Again, to understand this context, the way Paul's mind by the Spirit of God came to this subject was he was talking in verses 3 through 5 about the false teachers. And obviously the false teachers, the main issue is what they teach. They teach, they spin lies about who Jesus is. They spin lies about what godliness is. But here is a mark of false teachers. They're in it for the money. They think that godliness, their form, is a, a way to make money. You can draw a crowd, controversial, provocative teaching. Crowds mean resources, money, give it to me. Paul knows, however, that that is not only a false teacher's problem. That is everyone's problem. Everyone struggles with this, this desire for more and more money or nicer and nicer things. We just have all different kinds of versions of it. And so Paul says, we need to talk about this because godliness plus contentment is gain, only it's like a play on words. I'm defining it, Paul says, like true gain, true wealth. So who needs this passage today? Who needs to learn contentment? I've, 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 I've summarized the four categories of financial situations of people that need this passage. Those who are struggling financially, first of all. Those who are getting by those who are doing quite well, and those who have an abundance. I think I've covered everybody. <laughs> the person struggling is thinking thoughts of groceries and, and rent and can I provide or I'm in trouble, I don't know what I'm going to do. The person who's getting by is getting by, but words like transmission are frightening because there wouldn't be money for that. The person who's doing quite well is able to pay for everything that comes up, and there's a little bit in savings if the transmission does go out, but they don't really have that sense of security, and they think about the future, and 401ks are constantly on the mind. And the person who has an abundance is okay with now, and really they're taken care of, it seems like, for the future, but on their mind are more things like you know, tax law changes, or inheritance, or long-term care, or, or expenses that have more zeros than others. I don't know where you see yourself, but I'm really convinced that as Paul tells Timothy to talk to the church in Ephesus, he meant all of us. 
Because this verse is teaching us that the, the spiritual measuring stick for all categories is contentment. The people who are in A would really like to be in B. The Bs would like to be Cs, and the Cs would like to be Ds, and the Ds are looking at other Ds. Just kind of the way human nature works. So, understanding this verse, and then the passage that unfolds, is likely to create some measure of spiritual discomfort. But that's okay. In fact, that's even the good news, because spiritual discomfort is the only path to spiritual growth. If we don't become uncomfortable in areas of our life, we will not grow any more than someone who's working out has to experience some muscle pain, some fatigue, some stretching of the lungs to be able to grow stronger. So let's, let's think a little bit about how to measure our spiritual contentment. Starting with the fact that we would like to think that as we go through stages of life, we will progress financially. And it's a general principle that, you know, if at 40, you're maybe doing better than you were at 20, more secure or something. Maybe at 60, things are looking better than 40. And I know there's exceptions. I know there's, there's financial reversals or whatever. Let's just, just, let's just say that you've been able to see some progress. And you, you've, you've accumulated a little more, there's a little bit, of, a little bit more uh, you know, buffer. And you're doing a bit better. Good for you. You may even see it as God's blessing, and it is. But here, I think, is the uncomfortable question that this passage gives us. If I am better off than I was 10, 20 years ago, am I more content than I was 10 or 20 years ago? Uh, I could have double the salary, I could have triple the wealth, and be no more content. Because godliness with contentment is true wealth. So is, is there, has there been a, a parallel growth that whatever your path has been financially, that you can see that you are now more content about your finances than you were? That's the true measure. Because it's actually quite possible that greater financial capacity could actually stir in us the same or even more discontent. Because discontent can be defined by sometimes the, the questions we ask ourselves about material things that begin with, what if? What if I had? What if I bought? What if I invested in? What if I could do? What if, what if I could afford? And when those questions are, are consuming us, it's a red flag. Because greater financial capacity does not necessarily produce greater contentment. Because contentment is a spiritual quality, not a financial quantity. And we have to come to grips with that, or else our sinful nature might mean that in greater times of prosperity, 
our eyes only grow wider with more expectations and upgrades and ideas. And it can just grow our selfishness instead of our contentment. But if godliness plus contentment equals true wealth by God's measure, the question is, how wealthy are we by God's standard? So this passage could be an encouragement, and that's really more the flavor, the bent of verses 7 and 8, or it could be more of a warning, which is more the direction that verses 9 and 10 are pointed. Good news is, contentment is in reach of everyone. Jesus told a story to help us define what true wealth is and is not. I'd like us to read it from Luke 12. Then he, Jesus, said to them, Watch out, be, in, be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. I'm sure he's talking to a crowd that is probably financially as diverse as, as us here in the room today. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Someone. And then Jesus makes his point. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. That's his point. Jesus is not criticizing this man in the parable for being successful at farming. Anyone successful in farming, uh, it's God who sent the rain, God who sent uh, the sun. It's not that you shouldn't be successful. Abraham was very wealthy and godly. David was very wealthy and godly. Solomon was very wealthy and godly for a while until pride and perhaps the money and his wives turned his heart. So the problem is not this farmer's success, but that he was not rich towards God. And godliness plus contentment is great gain. So are you rich towards God, or are you measuring your progress in life with a financial yardstick? Contentment's a battle that we face at every financial level, and more will not fix it. And the warning of Jesus was, you fool, this night your life will be demanded from you, which is exactly where verse 7 now takes us in our passage. This is why we should be content. This is why we should understand that contentment with godliness is great gain. It's because we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Stunningly simple, obvious. You know what you and I have in common financially with Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Elon Musk? This is what we have in common. They came into life with nothing. They go out with nothing, just like you and I. Everyone leaves everything. And so his point is, 
this is like a first requirement for contentment. We have to have an eternal perspective on earthly wealth. Everyone leaves everything. It's such an important common theme. It's found throughout, sprinkled throughout Scripture. Just a couple of examples. Job, who writes this at a time of great financial reversal, if you know the story. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Wow. That lesson from Job. Or Ecclesiastes that we studied recently. Solomon writing, I think, at a time of spiritual recovery later in his life said, everyone comes naked from their mother's womb and as everyone comes so they depart, they take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. Or Psalm 49. This, this, this is good because we're so good at watching and looking at others. Do not be overawed when others grow rich, when the splendor of their houses increases, for they will take nothing with them when they die. Their splendor will not descend with them. Though while they live, they count themselves blessed, and people praise you when you prosper. They will join those who have gone before them who will never again see the light of life. Death is always sobering, but we read this and realize death is also very useful to remind us or help us understand or embrace priorities. The Egyptian pharaohs were known for being entombed with much of their fabulous wealth. When the more famous King Tut, uh, his tomb was discovered, there were all these tunnels and chambers, seemingly endless valuables sprinkled through all these different passageways. And when they found the coffin, the, the inner coffin was made of solid gold. 243 pounds of solid gold was the inner coffin. And on his face, or where his face used to be, was a 24-pound solid gold mask. Through the centuries, grave robbers had found various portions of the tunnels or passageways, and so some of the valuables were gone. But at least then at least somebody got some use out of them someplace compared to the rest that just sat there. Took nothing with him, just like us. So the first requirement is to have an earthly perspective of, of an eternal perspective of earthly wealth. And verse 8 then gives us this requirement. We got to be grateful for the basics. But if we have food and clothing we will be content with that. Will we? Will we? we? I mean, we would add and shelter and transportation, reliable transportation, I mean, nice transportation and a smartphone, a newer one, and a motorcycle. And suddenly our list of the basics or the essentials just keeps on growing. August, when I was on that motorcycle trip out west, I was, I was enjoying this, the ride, and, and uh, 
we stopped this one place, there's a waterfall, and so we took this hike to the waterfall. And I remember as I was hiking, I had this thought for some reason of, I'm just enjoying the ride and, and the ability to ride and the ability to hike. And I realized, someday I can't do this. I won't be able to balance the bike. I won't be able to hike to the waterfall. And this, this, this thought came to me, and actually when I got back to the bike, I, I typed it into my phone, and I've been thinking about it off and on. Aging is the process of everything being taken away from us except God. Aging is the process of everything being taken away from us except God. Because we're all going to be there. And there's going to be this final slice of our life, whether it's days, months, or years, in which we will be physically limited. And in that state of limitation, we might be in a nursing home or a hospital or hopefully in our own home. But we'll be confined and so we will have our bedroom where we sleep, maybe a lot, and we'll hopefully be able to get to the kitchen and the bathroom. And that will be our life. And God. Will we be content? That's what he's calling us to. Because if we can find that contentment now with all of our ability to enjoy true blessings, then we are narrowing in on the contentment of true wealth. This verse uh, 8 is actually not stated as a command like thou shalt be content. Grammatically, it's not a command. It's really, it's like Paul just saying, this is what I'm doing, would you join me? It's an invitation. If we have food and clothing, Paul tells Timothy, we'll be content with that. And he asks us to join him in that in that radical way of thinking because that would then be, verse 6, great gain, great true wealth. In this passage, Paul does not tell us, does not get into how we achieve or find or progress towards contentment. He's basically just telling us why it's so important. And the first two verses are like encouraging us, you want this, right? You want to live content. And then for those who need a little bit sharper stick in the side, he, he gives us the warnings of verses 9 and 10, and to give, get a little more of the negative motivation. But before we go there, I'd like us to think about some of the passages in Scripture where we're told some of the steps of how. How do we become content? We'll call it a path of contentment. These aren't steps, just three different places, he tells us some of the things, the mindset that we will need. The first is that we need to desire contentment, not wealth. In other words, the question to ask is, what do you want? What do you want? For this, let's go to to Proverbs 30. A guy named Agur, A-G-U-R, the only thing we really know about him is we have Proverbs 30. He's a very wise remarkable man. He wrote, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much 
This is a prayer. I may have too much and disown you, God, and say, who is the Lord? I don't need you. Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. The way Agar looked at his life materially was on either end is spiritual disaster. I could have the spiritual disaster of too much and feel self-made, I don't really need God, or I could have the other one of poverty. I'd find myself being dishonest in desperation. If, if, if you hear the impoverished children, homeless children on the street stealing for food, we, we kind of get that. But he said, I, I want to make sure I'm not violating God. Do you see his spiritual priority? What do you want? He says, I want a spiritual contentment about my financial situation. I remember hearing about a motivational speaker on the subject of wealth who proposed that what you need to do as you pursue your wealth and practice whatever strategies are in the seminar, says, take a picture, get a picture of what you want. Sports car, yacht, big house, whatever it is. And put it on your desk because you need continual reminding of this is what you want. And it'll help motivate you. And frankly, it's a good strategy. Now with it comes all the warnings of verses 9 and 10, but if the goal is wealth, then keep it in front of you. And so the question would be, what do we want? Because we should keep it in front of us. Would, would it be a number? Would it be some certain material things? Or would it be the word contentment? Because whatever it is that we truly desire, that is what we will pursue. It's a radical proverb. I just want my daily bread. Seriously? We'd call that poor. So where are we on the path to contentment? Because if, if we think like Agar, we will progress towards contentment. We won't buy the lie that we tell ourselves the next thing will help satisfy me. Secondly, knowing God won't abandon you is on the path to contentment. Knowing God won't abandon you. The writer to Hebrews wrote, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. This is simply the, the issue of trusting God because that's essentially what the Christian life is about, trusting God. We, we have to trust him with everything eventually. We've got to trust him with our health situation. We trust him with our marriage and parenting situations. We have to trust him with friends and jobs. And we have to find peace in our relationship. Why would finances be any different? This seems to be speaking to the person who struggles with contentment out of fear. Fear that they're struggling, barely making it, how will I pay the medical bills, afford the braces, replace the car, it's in trouble, those kind of things. And sometimes in that situation, 
our discontent seems very justified because our, our worries are very real. God doesn't let us off the hook on the issue of contentment. He still calls it the love of money versus contentment. Uh, discontent, as we've seen, is an equal opportunity sin. But God's word is very gentle here with us as we think of financial fears because he addresses it with a promise. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And you can take that to the bank. And you understand that if you've been there. You can cry that into your pillow. I'll never leave you. Andre Crouch in the 70s wrote a song, Through It All. Uh, if I'd never had a problem, I wouldn't know that God could solve them. I wouldn't know what faith in God could do through it all, through it all. I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. I, I sang that with some groups in, as a teenager. <laughs> what did I know? <laughs> what did I know that I would have to trust God with in the decades ahead. Obviously, it applies to every fear but finances. And so he says, don't, don't love money. Be content in my promise to be with you. One more. Resting in what God provides through Christ's power. In Philippians, Paul is really sharing his own financial story. I have learned the secret of being content. There it is. This is going to be important, isn't it? I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Here it is. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. That's a familiar-sounding verse. Usually it's translated, I can do all things through him which is also true and accurate, but it's a term that is referring back to what he's just said. I can do what? I can be, con that's my secret of being content. My secret to being content is I can do that through Christ who gives me strength. That's the secret, Christ's strength. Paul's a spiritual giant in our minds, but we have to remember that he lived the life of a missionary financially he depended on what people gave him. And when that wasn't enough or that wasn't available, in those times, he would work as a tent maker, his childhood trade, from his dad probably. So Acts 18 tells us of a time when he was sewing tents alongside Aquila and Priscilla in, in Corinth. But he says, I have been hungry. Maybe he means that like, Metaphorically? No, Second Corinthians eleven twenty seven. he directly said, I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Can any of us identify with that? Actually, I mean, literally? This past week, I made the, the shirt change. I took my short sleeve shirts from upstairs, 
took him down the stairs and hung him where we hung him, hang stuff in, in the winter, and I took my long sleeve shirts and brought them up to my closet. How did I get that many shirts? I've never been threadbare. Paul somehow had gone through deep need and enjoyed the secret of being content. It was his relationship with Christ. Christ empowered him to be at peace when he didn't have the next meal. He's the right guy to tell us that godliness with contentment is true wealth. An old story of a humble Christian who sat down to a meal of bread and water and said, all this and Jesus too. So I don't know, what is your, what is your contentment temptation? Paul says there's plenty and there's want. And we, we need to learn contentment in whichever situation, okay? Which is your contentment temptation? Is it, I'm discontent because of what I can't afford? Or is it I'm discontent because of what I can afford? It's the same sin. It's the same struggle. And so we must value our relationship with Christ so much that we call out to him and focus on that relationship so that I can endure my time of need and so that I can address whatever envy or longings clutching for my soul. So, find yourself on the path to contentment. Now Paul says, I have to, back to 1 Timothy, I have to, I have to, I've got to warn you. I want to encourage you to, to join me in being content with the basics. But now I need to warn you what happens if you don't get on this path. People who want to get rich, verse 9, fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You'll notice a a phrase, uh, three phrases, basically all saying the same thing. Wanting to be rich, loving money, eager for money. He never is anti-wealth. He's never saying that there are not good things to enjoy. In fact, by the time we get to the end of this chapter, he says, enjoy the blessings God gives you. This is no contradiction. But he says the problem is wanting, longing for that. Because we usually define wealth as someone who is one category above us. A lot of you probably followed the news about the proposed billionaire tax. The articles say that there are an estimated 700 people in the United States who are billionaires. You know what I bet? I bet you they know about where they are 
in that ranking of 700. And at any given time, there's really only one who cannot say, I wish I was as wealthy as Elon Musk, I think, is leading the pack right now. Because that is just our, our, our human desire. I'm sorry if I offended you if you're one of those. People who want to get rich are going to face a danger. When wealth is our priority, we can ruin the most valuable things in life. That's why he calls it a temptation and trap. The trap simply means that there are problems ahead that we don't see. That's what traps do. Why do we call them speed traps? Because we don't see that we're about to get a ticket. There's all kinds of traps in life. For some, the, for some, the trap is anger issues. So the bait is that this was wrong, and we're justified, and we explode. That's the bait. And the trap is that we ruin relationships around us. For some, the trap is about morality, and so the bait is the pleasures of immorality. The trap is the hidden guilt or the scars on our marriage or or impact on our family. And for some, the trap is wanting to be rich. The bait is the stuff we could enjoy, the security we think we have, the prestige of nicer things or whatever, but the the trap then becomes maybe the ethical compromises, the, the, the lies or dishonesty that are on that path or the things we have traded away, the, the, the investments we didn't make in, in our family or the time we didn't spend with God or the, the ministries that God designed us for that we never got around to because of our pursuit financially. So we just have to ask ourselves if there's, if there's, if there's a trap that we're walking into. So he states it another way in verse, first part of verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So, so the, this love of money becomes like a root cause of problems that we cause. So, some of them, right? All kinds. So we might ask ourselves, why did I get so terribly angry? Oh, it's because of what it was costing me financially. So the real root cause was my love of money, but anger is what it looked like. Why did I get in trouble with the IRS? It wasn't that I didn't cover my tracks, it's that I loved money. (laughs) Why did he get fired? Well, because of the way I recorded this or took advantage of that or the love of money was the root of all kinds of evil or Proverbs 15.27 simply says, the greedy brings ruin to their households. Money is the root. Don't ever misquote it. Money is not the cause of evil. Money is a good thing. Money is a tool. Money is, money is the, the way God teaches us to work hard. Uh, money is the way that God teaches us to trust him. Money is the way God teaches us to be generous. Money is the way God teaches us to be content. Money is a great 
sacred tool of God, but loving it, longing for it, completely changes the picture. In the final phrase of this paragraph, Paul seems to bring his attention, focusing it on Christians. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. He doesn't name names here. Sometimes he does, right, earlier in the book. But the way he says it kind of sounds like he's thinking of some names and faces. Some people I know he would be saying. Maybe someone comes to your mind. I, as I was studying this week, some, some people have come to my mind who, who once had a heart for God, for ministry, for generosity, some significant ministries that were abandoned. This doesn't mean I don't think that they lost, their, I know it doesn't mean they lost their salvation or proved that they weren't saved. The wondered from the faith is simply, they, they wondered from the impact of their faith. They were no longer committed to the gospel, no longer committed to Christ. They had lost some of the true value of this relationship that God had called them in and equipped them for, and they wandered away. Reverse course, turned inward. And as a result, not only was there spiritual damage, there was emotional damage. They pierced themselves with many griefs. They live with the regret. Let's do some evaluation, just some questions we can ask ourselves to see how we're doing. How much do I think about ways to accumulate or what to buy? How much is that obsessing, controlling, taking up our mental space? Are financial material things distracting me from God or how he may want to use me? Have I, have I considered what God has called me to do or to be, and is it getting in the way? We've we got to go to work. We're providing for our family. That God called you to do that. But where, where has it tipped to where you can't do what God is calling you to do? Are my desires or efforts to upgrade obsessing and stressing me? Maybe you know. Maybe those around you know. Do I enjoy material things as gifts from God or deserved for my own efforts? Just a, almost like a, a switch you can flip in your mind in terms of how you think about the things that you have, that God has enabled you to have. And then, do I regularly find peace about financial concerns by reflecting on God's faithfulness. Because our fears are always focused on the future. And he says, wait a minute, let's look at the past. Has God taken care of you? So are, are, that's, that's, that's part of this contentment path. Many of our homes are heated with uh, natural gas. The gas flowing to our furnaces, natural gas has no natural smell at all. And so the gas company adds a scent. 
It's an additive actually called mercaptan. Yes, I looked it up. You add this scent, and then when there's a leak anywhere in the system, you notice something stinks. Some say it's kind of like a rotten egg kind of a smell. But it's warning you of a danger. This danger is that if something were to spark, it could blow up your house while you're gone or kill you if you're there. So many of Satan's temptations are unseen, and undetectable materialism is one of those. It's a silent killer. And so Paul's really describing or maybe trying to bring out in us an understanding of what we otherwise don't see, a benign, unnoticed selfishness, an almost undetectable, silent hiding of discontent that we would call need or entitlement, deserved, or coming from a competitive spirit. He or she has envy. And, and what's happening is that leaking into our hearts and minds is something that is replacing what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in us. And in drawing us away from the value of our relationship with Christ. He says, I'm offering you the power of Christ's strength to rid, find, expel the discontent to be replaced with the true worth, the true value. So are you on a path to contentment? Are, will you keep fighting the tensions, the mind battles? We all have them. Will we keep addressing this silent killer to find the true wealth of contentment and make that our goal? Let's pray that we, we would. Heavenly Father, we see ourselves in the mirror of your word over and over and over. And so help us never to avoid that powerful work you are always doing. Help us to have an eternal perspective of everything and never to protect financial things as a secular non-spiritual thing in our minds but that we would realize everything about us is spiritual because we belong to you all of us every part of our life belongs to you and we want to honor you with it all so give us lord that courage to see ourselves honestly and to take steps from within that may affect uh, choices and priorities that we have. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.